Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in with us today on our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. Our podcasts are brought to you by the Military Child Education Coalition, whose work is focused on ensuring quality educational opportunities for all military-connected children affected by mobility, family separation, deployments, and transition. Here at the MSEC, we want to ensure that every military child is college, workforce, and life ready. In our podcast, we will share your stories as we talk to military service members, professionals, parents, and military kids. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you would like to hear more about. I'm Tara Gleason, and I am your host. I'm a professional educator, curriculum developer, and researcher, but I'm also a parent and military spouse. I want to welcome everyone to our MSEC podcast for the sake of a child. Our topic today is autism, and this is part one in a two-part series. Be sure to keep listening after the interview for our After the Show. Joining us today is Lieutenant Colonel Eric Flake, MD, and he's the Program Director of the only Department of Defense Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Fellowship at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and he's also the founder of the only DOD Autism Center, JBLM Cares, and he's going to talk a little bit more about that a little later. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Flake. You bet. Tara, thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to speak a little bit about autism. I guess first is an understanding that this, it's not a scripted podcast. Uh, everything's talked about due to experience of working with kids with autism. And, you know, my other thought that I need to bring up is that these thoughts uh, as the typical disclaimer are not those of the Air Force, the Department of Defense, or they're, they're my own only. So just to tell you a little bit about myself, I have been a developmental pediatrician for over 10 years and pediatrician for almost 15 and uh, just really have a passion for caring for what I think are um, some of the most deserving kids that I've ever met and worked with and their families as that of military families. So I feel like I've got one of the best jobs in the world as I get to also train developmental pediatricians now to go out there and care for other military families with autism or other developmental delays. Most importantly, I also am a dad of five. I love the outdoors. It's fun living in the Northwest as when it is sunny, you run out there and you enjoy it. I've got four girls and a boy and I've been married for 20 years. So that's a little bit about me too, Tara. Well, thanks. Can we start by you telling folks about what autism is and what the prevalence is now in 2018? Great question to kind of get us started. Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. It is something that uh, impacts the the way the neurons speak with each other, and they primarily have uh, outward manifestations of difficulty with social interaction. And then there's also some restrictive and repetitive and somewhat sensory behaviors that come from this neurological um, impact that happens. As far as where that comes from, that's uh, definitely thought to be multifactorial, which sometimes is a, a term that says we don't have our exact finger on that button of what it is. We feel that it does have some genetic impact. There are some environmental pieces to that, and we may be talking more about some of those sources. But right now, the number that's holding pretty steady is about 1 in 68 kids 
born in America are diagnosed with autism. Boys have a higher prevalence of four to one um, of girls. It, you you may want to kind of bring in severity in, into that too. You know, even though boys have a higher percentage of diagnosis just by sheer numbers, maybe their the severity isn't as much. Um, but autism, in in my practice and observation is different per individual child, but you also see some gender differences in how it's manifested in, in boys and girls. Interestingly enough, for some of our bases where families with autism are compassionately reassigned, that prevalence is even higher to the tune of 1 in 40. So you can imagine wow. um, if you have 1 in 40 on, on your base, what, what that does to your child development centers, to your schools, because that breaks down to about 1 in 15, 1 in 20 families. And so in any neighborhood, you're going to have a concentration of families or individuals that have autism. And I think it, the best way is to bring them into your community and, and have them be a part of them, um, of, of your community experiences. And so when you talk about prevalence, some believe that autism is being diagnosed more now than ever before. Do you find that is true in recent years, or is there an explanation for what some would perceive as more prevalent now than what it was in the past? So I, I definitely think what we identify now as autism has has been broadened. Before it, it met um, some very uh, kind of extreme criteria, for someone to determine that this was a child who had an autism spectrum disorder, uh, a lot of those end up being seen on, on television. And to meet a specific criteria of autism now, there is a diagnostic statistical manual. The fifth edition is now out, and it's basically taken autism as a, a larger spectrum of an umbrella and identified that if you have a history or current difficulties in function, of the social uh, interactions and some of these um, sensory difficulties, then you, you meet that criteria. That includes older criteria, which um, had what was called the Pervasive Developmental Disorder, or PDD, NOS, or Asperger's, or even what was identified as atypical autism. There's, there's other terminologies, children that may not meet exact criteria, and, and some of those are ones that have come around with a social communication disorder or some sensory processing difficulties as well. So uh, what happens is I think ultimately you're looking at what is keeping a child from functioning optimally and keeping them from meeting their, their potential. And if they meet that criteria for autism, then it's appropriate to make that diagnosis and get them the, the helpful intervention to help kind of retrain or re-help support the, the brain as it's making new neurological connections. And so what are some of those, quote-unquote, warning signs that parents can be on the lookout for in their children if there is a concern about a developmental delay or autism? Are there classic things they should be looking for? So this, this is really important, especially um, some of the early warning signs. that We've identified even as early as age one, that there are definite risks in, in kids who are later diagnosed with autism, and we want to identify them as early as possible to be able to start getting them the intervention. To include as, as early as a child can pick up a, a, a Cheerio, 
they have developed what's called a pincer grasp. And that pincer grasp quickly develops into the ability to point with their index finger. And that pointing finger has tremendous amount of power to get an adult to do something for them, like get them more Cheerios. So that type of pointing is a, a skill that happens at 12 months. Later, that pointing becomes more developed that when a child sees something interesting, they point to that interesting item, whether it's an animal or a plane passing by, and that gets developed at 15 months. And what's interesting is that pointing then gets integrated with eye contact. And you look at the person, and then you look to make sure that they're looking at where you're pointing, and then you've shared an experience. And it, you, would, you wouldn't think that that type of connection, that social connection is happening that early, but actually uh, you start noticing that early happening even earlier than that, where you smile at a child and they smile back, and you look at them and they look back at you, and it kind of becomes this even pre-verbal skill um, social connection. And that's, that's some of the, the bedrock of how we communicate as, as humans. And children with uh, early signs of autism just haven't developed that. For some reason, there's, there's a block in, in the brain that those type of neurons aren't recognizing that that's a, a, a human drive and need. Now, sometimes for kids, that does develop. And in kids who have a higher functioning level of autism, you often don't recognize some of their social difficulties or some of their sensory rigidities until they're in early elementary school. And, and this is where it gets a little more challenging because in, in these kids that are higher functioning who typically have normal IQs, they've been progressing well. They've had some difficult times along the way, but overall they've been able to be around their peers, and now they're, they're starting to struggle. And so we're, there's, there's some tools and some ways to identify or tease out, you know, are those struggles behavioral, are they neurological, are they a combination of both, and, and trying to get them the, the appropriate supports. You talked a little bit about genetics earlier, but oftentimes families want to know why. Have definitive answers been found to the cause of autism, or has any research uncovered potential uh, underlying factors, like, like consistencies, I guess? You, you have no idea how bad I wish that there was a single etiology. I wish that just like for somebody who's diabetes or who has diabetes, that you can measure a certain blood level to see how well things are going with a child's autism. And, and there's a lot out there. There are recent studies that show about looking at urine and looking at metabolites in the saliva to determine if the, there are higher concentrations in kids with autism than not. There's mm-hmm. um, other factors that people try to bring up with regards to certain types of what's genetic identifications, whether you have multiple copy number variants or other particular hot zones, if you will, that are identified as higher risk for autism. There's There's been studies of looking at the, how, how the placenta provides blood flow to the child. People have tried a lot, and unfortunately, they're still very much on the initial research. I would like mm-hmm. to point out that there are quite a bit of funding through what's called the CARES Act towards identifying and determining why for kids with autism. Typically, when we do a blood test, we'll, we'll identify maybe 
10 to 15 percent, and there have been numbers that are higher than that, but depending on severity of autism is what makes the difference of, you know, a genetic connection with, with that autism. But uh, other than that, it's it's still really difficult to, to just pin it down to one thing. And and I think it's important for parents to know that there wasn't something that they did during, you know, the baby being grown in utero that would have increased or decreased the cause of, of, of this autism, at least at what we know to this point. There are risk factors, but it really, I, I, I would just rather people focus on their child and focus on how they can, you know, provide them the supports and the interventions to help them optimize to, to the best that they can in the world. It'll be interesting if we have the opportunity to talk again in 10 years what this new research and all this funding towards research is going to uncover, you know, there in the future. So Absolutely. If, ten ten yeah. years ago, um, we didn't have nearly the amount of genetic testing that we have now. So right. it'll be interesting. So we wear many hats. Spouses and active duty service members know how that is. So we at Parent to Parent are trained professionals, but we are also parents. So as a parent of a child with autism, some parts of this interview with Dr. Flake, it, it really struck a chord with me personally. So let me start with the day I got the call from my, from my son's behavioral health professional, who I urged to just tell me the test results on the phone before our appointment the following week. So it was a Friday afternoon, and I can tell you exactly where I was sitting, on the brick front steps of our rental home that August day in central Missouri. Part of me felt relieved to hear the word autism because maybe that meant I wasn't just a bad parent who couldn't control my own child. As an active parent educator out in the community, no less. I won't lie, I cried that entire weekend. What I didn't know then is that news like this causes parents to go through our own grief cycle that we often talk about in our workshops. I remember questioning, will he have the capability of fully love, to show empathy, to have a friend, to be in a loving relationship as an adult? So Dr. Slate talked about how autism is on a spectrum. And for my son, when we had our initial meeting to go over his test results, Fizz explained that if someone could be just a tiny bit autistic, that's where he fell. So his symptoms are fairly mild compared to some other kids. And most people meeting him today probably wouldn't know he's been diagnosed with autism. That fact has sometimes caused me to be in denial and question the diagnosis and also not to utilize some of the resources available because I thought they should be reserved for families who really needed them and we were getting, getting by. I also didn't feel justified in my emotions as a parent or in my grief because I knew of so many other families who I perceived as having it harder than we did. It resonated with me that Dr. Flake talked about how services can help kids with autism to live optimally. So we can do more than just get by. So several years ago, I wrote a letter to our CEO at the NSEC, Mary, and my boss, Judy, who's the program director for Parent to Parent. It was later published in our On the Move magazine, and it shared a little bit of our personal story shortly after a dyslexia diagnosis, actually later that fall. Part of that letter talked about how I, as a parent-to-parent trainer, had partnered for years with programs like the Exceptional Family Member Program, or ESMP, and ACS, and that's the Army's version of the Family Readiness Center. 
And suddenly I found myself being a member of a group I never expected, nor was I prepared for. I truly did feel relief with the dyslexia diagnosis because I'm a teacher who taught dozens of kids to read, but despite my bag of reading tricks that I'd learned, I couldn't teach my own son. But frankly, the autism diagnosis scared me to death because, one, there are super scary statistics out there, and, two, I had a limited knowledge base on how to help him. I suddenly found myself on the other side of the table as now a parent who needed support and information. And as I began the journey of being a parent with a child with exceptional needs, so we referenced the webinar that we did back several months ago, and for those of you who could join us for that, a service provider wrote a comment in the chat box that dealt with parents questioning diagnosis. I will tell you that our family has fallen in that category, especially in the first couple of years. We've had conflicting information from different professionals on autism on separate scales, which often left us confused and questioning the diagnosis, especially since our son falls on the mild side of the spectrum. When Dr. Flake discussed that some kids show signs as early as one, I thought to myself, yep, I've read that before, and our son really never met those criteria in our opinion. They're thus spoiling our suspicion and our, you know, the diagnosis. But others, um, he said, don't show signs until early elementary school, but have struggled. For one, I'd not heard that or read it before, and for the very first time, I thought to myself, maybe we should stop questioning this diagnosis and just accept it for what it is. So later on in the webinar, or on the podcast, I asked the question that every single one of us who has a child with autism has wondered and desperately wants to know the answer to, and that is why. Just last week, during one of our parent meetings at our local autism center, I asked the question again to the clinical supervisor, because let's face it, we will never stop asking until we know. And she was telling me about new studies about toxins in the environment and in our food and a couple other studies. So we referenced some of that in the podcast, but what struck me is when Dr. Flake reiterated, it's not your fault. And a small voice inside me said, but what if it is? We don't know. I actually tear up just thinking, but it's my truth, I guess, because I'm not sure about your experiences, but I've had many well-intentioned family members or friends or even strangers who have implied otherwise with comments. And I can't seem to settle on this topic of why within myself until that question is answered. And I truly believe one day in our lifetime it will be. I want to thank you again for listening on our podcast today. I want to thank you again for listening to our podcast for the sake of the child. We would like to invite you to visit our website at www.militarychild.org. Like the MSEC on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Please join us again next time as we share more stories that impact our military-connected kids.